Hello and welcome to How to Win the Lottery, Season 2, Episode 14, The Instructions by Adam Levin. I'm Joey Lewandowski. Hi, Joey Lewandowski. Who are you today? Mm. No one. No, no identity. No shy, I- shy guy. Shy guy. Welcome we're to gonna, the- We're going to move away from identity as, I, as my job becomes something that... Uh, Oh, do you want me to take my, do you want me to take your name off the podcast? <laughs> we might have to bleep it. Well, it's like it's in writing. Yeah, we'll do a strike through so that it it doesn't actually obscure anything. I'll put like I'll I'll do like leet speak, <laughs> yeah. where the O becomes a zero and the one becomes an or the I becomes a one. You know, the one in your last name is going to become an I. Anyway, we're back. We have not recorded in probably six or seven weeks. It's been a long time. We had a long, a big, big long book today. But... And also, just I feel like life has been busy. Like we should have. This was always going to take a while. Yeah, we had a lot because of Because this is a 1,030 or so page book. But it's it's like Giles. Like, I scheduled it improperly so that it hit at a time when... But I had no idea that the things going on with me were going to... Well, also, just like, you know, the start of the fantasy baseball season, which, again, sounds like it's it should be nothing, but, you know, a lot of... It's not nothing. ...unpaid labor for me to do. <laughs> but we are back here on the pod talking about With yet more unpaid labor. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we get sweet, sweet dividends from that Patreon... That I then directly turned around and funneled into cbbworld.com for other podcasting entertainments. Uh, yeah. But here we are talking about the instructions by Adam Levin. Probably the second longest book. I think Ducks is like slightly longer, but these are definitely the two longest books that we've covered for the podcast so far. Sure. Bob, what is the, this is your third time reading this book? Third time. So you've read 3,000 pages of the instructions. Yeah, which is. You read the story of stories, the old pan and the instructions. Y- yeah. What's this book about? Uh, it is about a young Jewish boy from Chicago who may or may not be the Messiah. Yeah. And, uh, he is in a cage program for behaviorally disordered children. Mm -hmm. Uh, in he's a, he's a fifth grader, but he's in a seventh grade class. Um, after having been removed from multiple schools for violent behavior. Yep. Where do we go from there? I don't know. So there's, there's, what's, what's the time span that this book covers? I think it's four days. Which is crazy. Is it Tuesday to Friday? I think so. So the entire thing is written essentially as gospel. Scripture, yeah. And it's written sort of years apart, it seems. Like there's like a first half, like an Old Testament and a New Testament, sort of. Yeah. And there's a there's a divide down the middle, and it's all largely told from Gurian, Ben Judah, Maccabee, Gurian, yeah, main Gurian. character. Mm-hmm. I did not cast. I did not think of anybody for no. Any it's not. It's not. It's because it's, it's all because they're all they're all like these are. This is the youngest group of protagonists that we have covered in any of these books so far. Which right? is a fascinating thing because I think like when I was you know oftentimes during the course of the book you forget how young they are because they're all wildly intelligent they're all as as intelligent as adults are Mm -hmm. you often think like the various adult themes that arise around it some shocking violence in this book and things like that is easier when you're picturing in your head to picture it happening to adults because we've been enculturated to imagine adults in violent situations but um when you get toward the end of the book when there is like significant real violence uh, you're reminded over and over again saying, they, well, they won't do that to kids. We're, we're just kids. They're not going to They're not right. going to do that to kids. It'll look bad for them if they do that to kids. In terms of the casting, you said that Adam Levin had said either at the thing you went to or just otherwise that he pictured Jaden Smith. Jaden yeah. Smith as Gurian. Because Gurian, 
the whole book is it's very Jewish, mm-hmm. very heavily religious, like out, outwardly religious, but also in the language, also in the rituals, also in the descriptions, also in everything. Yeah. Father, traditionally Jewish, I guess we could say. Mother, not so, because she's black. She's not... tra- tra- traditional is not the word that, that that I would necessarily. What would use you say? That. I'm trying to say. Uh, like... Well, she's she's one of the you know she's lost tribe uh, that uh, one of the lost tribes went to Ethiopia, and that's yeah. that's it. She's Ethiopian. Although he would deny, he he would. He's he, an Israelite. Yeah, he thinks of black as a completely incidental thing, which right. is an interesting uh, that that plays into his relationship with flowers. Um, in an interesting way. Flowers is the guy that kind of takes care of him after school. Because um, there's very few other black people in this novel. Yeah. Levon. Um, mm-hmm. That's really it. Just and his mom, way. right? Yeah. So yeah. I think, and again, this is just, this might just be my ignorant point of view, but when you, he- when you hear a young Jewish kid, you don't think a young black kid. And I know that that's not necessarily core, how he thinks of himself, but I think that's core to multiple plot points. Okay, how does it correlate to multiple plot points? Let's, well, I think, let's hear it. I think that he he has a certain perspective. I don't, mm, I don't feel intelligent speaking about this book because I feel like I'm. Mm-hmm. There's so much to take in. I just finished it this morning for the first time. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on in it. I think he's an outsider in more ways than one. I think that he he bounces from school to school. I think he is troublesome, and I think the my the the big. The big thing that I think I, I I didn't realize until the end, like I think, at least, and I don't know if this is fair, but I think most of the time I'm reading this, I'm thinking like they're kind of not playing pretend, uh-huh. but like they're just kids like playing a game, right? Like he's like, maybe I'm the Messiah. I don't know. I might I might be. Oh, I didn't think that because it doesn't, it, it, but, it never seems like Gurian's not taking it seriously. No, no, no. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying that, but I think that there is a certain element, again, keeping in mind that they're 10, 12-year-old kids, yeah. that they're just kids playing a game to a certain extent. You're framing that within the context that they are all in in school, in school suspension, and they have detentions, and they're in the cage program, and they're like, these are troubled kids, but you're like, they're just kids, whatever, right? And then the violence happens. You're like, oh, it was there all along. I just mm-hmm. didn't necessarily think about it like that. I didn't think. I didn't think that like the threats that they were making were real. Well, it's interesting because when you think of a lot of um, the violence that people of a certain degree of privilege uh, face throughout their lives, um, it's plausible that the most violence that I will ever see in my life, as a you know middle class. Uh, white person of a certain amount of privilege is from high school is from from seventh grade eighth grade because during these times you have kids put in positions and kids fight kids fight more than adults fight sure um and so because are is it because there's like fewer ramifications yeah probably it's also it's less scary and 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 you don't realize the extent of of mortality to a certain degree right because like I think about now, if I got into a fight and someone, I pushed someone and they fell and hit their head on the curb and they could die or something like that. But like, you know, when I was in fifth grade, I would fight like that. It was no, it was no problem. I would, you know, you'd punch each other and no one would really get hurt because you have these little fifth grade fists and it would never seem like, like you could be labeled a troublemaker and for certain people, as you can see in this book, that would fuck up your life entirely, right? Because you get 
I, I think this is w- one reason why v- violence among children is is interesting and strange because if you do get labeled a violent kid, you can get you know that label sticks with you and it can determine the course of your life because you can, for example, get put in a behavioral disordered program for kids like in in this program like Benji Nakamok, Vinci Portite, uh, Jelly, Levon, um, even some of the other kids that are not. Uh, Notably violent in 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 the book Benoit, uh, in, in in at least in the beginning of the book, these kids' lives have been derailed because once you're in a cage, you are no longer treated like the other students, and you're no longer part of like the larger culture where you're expected to succeed. So they end up in this circumstance where violence is expected of them because they're they're getting treated like criminals so they act the way that criminals act right mm-hmm. so you have them repeating the violence that's done to them so one of the things that's repeated books big on on semantics and and semiotics and stuff like that so one of the things that repeated is repeated throughout the book is this idea of damage there is, like right? i think maybe the first line is there is damage there was always damage there will be damage but not always and then i think the last book is damage there's always damage the so. la- the last line is damage and damage and damage then Yep. It's because damage functions as part of this feedback loop where these kids are, you know, like Benji is damaged at home by his by his mom mm-hmm. and he goes into school and he has no real model for love. So he, he functions in a way that damages other kids maybe. And then he's put in a cage where he's treated like someone who damages people. And because he's treated like someone who damages people, he may as well damage people because why why act like once you're labeled – it doesn't do you that much good to act in a way that that is counter to your label because you're going to get treated like a criminal anyway. So you may as well at least take advantage of being a criminal and be feared and be and be these things. Just becomes exponential. Like the, it, it bounces back and forth until you get this extraordinary damage that results in in a massive riot and death and and all of these things. I think that there's a very I think the most interesting di- dichotomy in this is that. All of that applies to Guri and that he is treated as someone who is a bad kid and a violent kid and a destructive kid. And he's punished as such and he's bounced around. And he's expelled from multiple schools. And he's in the cage program. But then you you talk to you hear from other characters who say that he's like the most gifted scholar that they've ever yeah. spoken to. There's the there's the element of perspective. It's like, who are you listening to? Who are you talking to? What is their view of Gurian? And I think. The most interesting thing about the novel to me, I think, is his parents and the background and how it sort of perfectly aligns to, like, create both the most promising and potentially troubling kid imaginable. That he has – they're both brilliant, his his two parents. Mm-hmm. And his dad is, you know, this incredibly high-profile lawyer, defense lawyer who, like, defense attorney who defends, you know – as a Jewish man, defends a Nazi. He's essentially an ACLU lawyer. And then his mom is former Mossad, I think, right? Like this, like, war... Well, there's rumor that she may be Mossad. She's definitely former IDF. But, like, this warrior, like, ultimate fighter, like, we see her in the basement, like, doing all this training. So he's getting these two very different schools of thought. He's both a scholar and a warrior. And they treat him as an equal to a certain mm-hmm. extent. And they, t- they talk to him like an adult. And I feel like they are shaping his worldview in a way that is really up to him like do you want to use this power for good or for evil and he kind of does both yeah uh he and he's an outlier in the cage right because at least as far as we know because he has this supportive this support system at home he has this home life of people who 
do treat him like an equal, don't abuse him, uh, are there for him, are willing to engage in his... They refuse to even admit that he's disordered, which maybe he's not, but like, you know, his mom is a is a psycho- psychiatrist, psychologist, um, and she's stepping in and saying, like, you're not allowed to talk to my son, you know, you can't, like don't diagnose my son. He's mm-hmm. not this thing that you keep saying he is. They have him diagnosed as all of these things, some of which he's not even, you can't even legally be diagnosed as until you're over 18. So yeah, they're providing this environment of, uh, of except of him being like exceptional. Whereas everybody else in the cage is being provided with the, this environment where not only are they unexceptional, they're barely even noticed by the people that are supposed to take care of them and support them. So when someone like Gurian comes in, and starts and sees them for as people sees them as people and and like sees them as not just people but um people with potential yeah people with potential people who like he cares for have value yeah he cares for them in a way that in in a way that the people in their lives that are supposed to care for them don't um and protects them and and provides this environment uh where they're aligned then they start looking at him as a leader and and like you could read this book as a novel. You could certainly read it as a school shooting novel. Yeah, for sure. You could read it as a cult novel. There's lots of different different views of this, but Gurian is essentially a cult leader. Yeah. And I think I think he's also willing to teach them in a way that it seems like the rest of the world has already given up on these kids. Keeping in exactly. mind that they're 12, yeah. but they're yeah. all just like, these kids are lost causes. Even, and, and this is something that we'll, we'll come back to, I'm sure, later, but Brodsky, who's the principal, who's introduced to us as this, like, very well-meaning guy who really wants the best for everyone and wants to uh, help Gurian and, and tries to get Gurian to use his potential to help other people mm-hmm. and, and stop the violence at Aptkizik, which is the name of the high school, wants uh, the best for him and presumably the best for the kids in the cage. But Gurian says, like, uh, he says, act like a mensch. And he goes, you're not treating me like a mensch. You're treating me like someone that's in a cage. Yeah. Um, but when you get to the end of, of the book, Brodsky really shows his colors in the way that a lot of adult bureaucrats, people who see the quote unquote real world for what it is, show their colors, which is that he refers to the cage as being successful because only 40 kids of the entire school are, are in there and he breaks the numbers down and he says it's like something like a 99 to 95% success rate. And so he says like by any metric, the cage is successful, but that's because he's not viewing the kids as kids, right? He's not viewing them as people. Right. He's viewing them as numbers, which Gurian views them as people, not as numbers. He views them as people who have their own quote damage. And that conversation is really one of the like butting of heads in a way where Gurian is talking about things and and brodsky's like well like if you just said like for many kids or for most kids like i couldn't argue with that but like it's it's a battle of semantics really yeah and he's like no but like it they're both i think that objectively you're like there's there's room to meet in the middle but there's neither of them are ever going to meet in the middle like they're just like i think brodsky seems like he wants to but he's not going to uh, no, because his responsibilities as an adult and as someone who has a job and and whatever is for the greater good but the greater good inevitably leaves behind people that it needs to leave behind, which which is one the most complicated thing in the world. Yeah. Right? But as a human being, and from Gurian's perspective, Brodsky is not being a mensch because he's he's not viewing these kids that he's supposed to protect, that he's supposed to take care of, that he's supposed to look out for. He's not viewing them as being humans. He's viewing them as a percentage point. And Getting rid of that percentage point, if all those kids died, the rest of the school would survive. 
that's a success for him. So by the end of the novel, where Gurian ostensibly has literally hundreds of kids from across Chicago marching toward this school. Yeah. Like four to six to eight to maybe a thousand kids. Mm-hmm. Are those all kids that have been left behind or just or they started there and there's people who just see the inspirational leadership of Gurian? I think I think you have you have a, a distinct division in the novel between two different people. You have two, two different sides. You have the side of damage, mm-hmm. which is the kids from the cage, which extends further to a lot of the kids at Aptekizek who feel left behind, who feel bullied, who feel as though they've been kicked around. You have... Uh, Isidore Momo, you have Beauregard Pate. These are kids that are uh, band kids, um, although they become a thing later on. These are kids that have been beaten up by this group called the Main Hall Shovers um, and are sort of, uh, you know, just imagine your own personal high school and imagine the kids in in The in Shovers there. are like the, like the cool kids, the athletes, the bullies. The... No, the Shovers the, the, the shovers are not are specifically not athletes. They're kids that are like kind of suck-ups to the athletes. Okay. They're like uh, essentially pep rally nerds, that like, but, but they like you know, they aspire to being liked by the cool kids and so utilize violence to, like, essentially pick on band kids and, and nerds in order to uh, up their social profile. Sure. Um, and so you have the side of damage, which is these kids at Aptekizik who are all um, people who have been imba- abandoned in some way are not protected by the people that they're supposed to be protected by in some way, have felt the violence of a world that is not willing to... Uh, uh, not willing to see them as human beings. And then the other side, you have Israelites who who uh, are just all the kids in all of the local um, Jewish schools all around Chicago or uh, Jewish kids just in Chicago in general. But for the most part, these are the kids that are in specifically private schools. And pretty much from schools that he has gone to and gotten expelled from. Yeah, well, that's what it is in the beginning. But then when you have 400, 500, 600 kids coming at the end, you realize that his influence has expanded way, way, way beyond those schools into all of the Jewish kids in the greater Chicago area. And I think that's another thing that you don't that goes back to what I was saying earlier about not realizing how serious this was when he sends the email and no one shows up. And you're like, oh, he didn't really have the power. Yeah. But then you realize the actual power he had was that parents were like, we need to shut this down. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And one of them wrote like a script that they could all install on their computer that like blocks his emails. Yeah. And so you think that he's just this kid like playing God in a certain way or trying to like play whatever, right? And you're like, oh no, he actually has the power and grownups are afraid of him. Yeah, so so the the reason why he has so much power within the um, Israelite community among these kids is because uh, he is an incredibly gifted scholar that they and and they believe they really seem to believe that he's the Messiah, which which Gurian goes into a lot of detail within the 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 book about um, how in every generation there's a potential messiah and he might be the messiah. Well, and this goes back to the, I think, the tautology of like what we've been talking about kind of all, maybe all podcast long or just especially this season where it's just like, is he the messiah? I don't know, but he's acting like a messiah, so he might as well be the messiah, right? Like, he Yeah, just... it's very, it's it's super like, I, I kind of wish that we had put this book back to back with Giles Goat Boy. I would have died. I know. Yeah, it's too it's too much. But like, th- there is like I, I, I do want to make it clear if people have listened to every episode, which at least Meg has. Giles is the, my least favorite book I've ever read, and this I gave five stars on Goodreads. So like, it's a very different thing. Yeah. But had I read these back to back, 
it would have been too much. But in but in, so in Giles, you have Giles repeating over and over again that he's the the Grand Tutor, which is the equivalent of the Messiah. And he says, and people always tell him, like, that's not how a Grand Tutor acts. And he goes, well, I'm the Grand Tutor and I'm acting that way. So therefore, that right. is how the Grand Tutor acts. You get a little of that from Gurian, but Gurian is never, is very careful to never say that he's the Messiah until the end, at which point you can be almost certain that he's not, based on the way, the conditions in which he says it. But, but also, like, the coda at the end is just like, maybe he is. Maybe yeah. he's not. Well, I don't, yeah, I, I yeah, I think I'm. I'm pretty sure that he's not, but he has the potential to be. So there you have right. you have the, that like uh, recursive recursive idea. But you have the Israelite kids who really feel as though he is the Messiah, probably because he does things like makes them feel safe. Right? They, there is an assault in in one of the the uh, in one of his schools, and he decides to arm all of these kids by writing his first piece of scripture, which is called Olpan, which is which means instructions, um, and it's instructions on how to build a penny gun. And the idea is to arm every single... And a penny gun is just like a, a, a thing that uses pennies as bullets, essentially, to like... Yeah. 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 Pennies, wing nuts, nibs. From... What are nibs? Oh, you know calligraphy pens? Yes. You know they have the sharp points? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. yeah, that's the... Gotcha, okay. You know, you I think sh- they probably explained that. I just I missed they that. Do. Or I forgot they that. Do. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so you can fire things... Uh, from uh, you, use, you take a liter bottle of soda, you cut part of it off mm-hmm. until you have the the part that has the mouth hole, and you affix a, a balloon to that, and you load the penny in, and then you stretch the balloon back, and you can fire. Yep. Um, so anyone can make that. It's very very easy. Is there meaning behind? Because he thinks he invented that. Yeah. And his girlfriend, future wife, however you want to describe her, June Eliza Watermark, is like, no, I did that. I called it a pen gun. It's not a penny gun. It's a pen gun. Is there? biblical allegory there is that just parallel thinking is there anything more than just a coincidence that they both invented this thing that he's i don't think it's a coincidence because she also invents the, the electric chair slash the i'm ticking right yeah. remember because benji yes. has this new move that he does that he i, I don't even know how to explain it like you you're, you're, you hold you're, your you're, breath it's like a spasm you're 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 Basically, you're pretending like you're in le- you're getting an electric shock. You can do it. Like when, when they describe it, I know exactly what they're talking yeah. about, and and like I've done it a million times in my life. But you're not. But except, yeah, is that disproving his divinity? No, I don't think so. I think it's just you know it's an instance of she's a special she's creative thinker as well, and okay. she can she can create this. I mean, I don't even know if I think he does say that he invented the penny gun. But um, she's like, no, I did that first. Yeah. So he he uh, he arms all these kids. And so I think part of their viewing him as the Messiah is they're viewing him as someone who's willing to keep them safe in a way that their parents are not. Yeah. Um, and the way that society at large is not that the way that society at large is not because he's protecting them from anti-Semitic violence um, and the way that he's protecting the side of damage from arrangement violence, which is like bureaucratic violence, violence against them from people who are uh, have the ability to do something like put them in a cage. Yeah. There's so much. I don't even know where to go from here. What else? What should we talk about next? Uh, you want to talk about characters? You want to talk about uh, the, the the villains of the novel? Sure. Okay. Who, who do you have as villains? Well, there's Berman, Aleph. Yeah, he's the most complicated villain of all of them, probably. And I was, I was telling you, and I, I this is why I sort of feel not unprepared, because I read the whole thing, but because it took me six weeks, and because there's so much 
and not knowing and you know we were talking about this before but there's toward the end like in the last like 50 pages of the book in the scripture that Gurian is writing he talks about rereading he talks about narrative structure he talks about how the thing at the end is the only thing you're going to remember yeah that in a good book or in a whatever book and whatever with the exception of Torah with the exception of Torah which starts you remember the beginning yeah you remember the end and then even if you remember a thing earlier, all that thing earlier means is that it's a means to an end. That A begets B begets C begets mm-hmm. D begets whatever at the end, and that's the thing. So here it's Nakamuk's death, basically, right? Like that's in a certain way because when he's talking to Jelly and she's like, you know, twist the narrative or whatever, like there's a whole like framing there that like this could all lead to that. But the reason I bring that up, and I probably muddied some of that. There's something about, I think every good piece of art is better the second time around or beyond, but there's so many characters and there's so much going on that like early on, I don't know who's important and who's not. And then it feels like out of nowhere to a certain extent, Berman is just like the villain in a way. Yeah. And you're like, oh, and you you think back and like, even if it's not like hundreds of pages back, but like people are like, he's, he's we got to keep an eye on him. And, and Gurian's like, no, he's fine. He's one of us. Or like, he's not really one of us, but he's kind of one of us, but like, well, he's Gurian, fine. Gurian is blinded by the fact that Berman is Jewish, um, which Gurian refers to Berman as an Israelite, as Gurian says, there are no more Jews. There are only Israelites now. Berman is an Israelite. Berman is my brother. Um, Berman is part of the main hall shovers. Um, and the main hall shovers have had a rift because every year, they order scarves that they wear in the hallway. And this year, the scarves that they've had that they've ordered have allowed people who are on the basketball team to put- choose a symbol for themselves. And one of the students who is a religious Christian chooses an ichthys as his symbol. The Jesus fish. The Jewish shovers say, I can't wear a scarf that has an ichthys on it. I just can't. I can't do it. So the kid takes away the the... Ichthys is fine, just if not Nichthys, then nothing. Let there be a blank spot. And they make more of a semantic, semiotic thing about it than than I think people would in real life, obviously. They say, look, that blank spot now is just representative of Jesus. It's saying, if not Jesus, then nothing. And so many of the main hall shovers, who are Jewish slash Israelite, leave. And so Berman becomes in... Gurian's mind, like Gurian initially thinks that he's kind of a dipshit and he is, he hates him initially because he had dated his uh, girlfriend, June. Even though she says they never kissed, they, you know, because it's, it's middle school romance. Even though they never kissed. Um, and he hates him initially for that, but he comes around on him because he is uh, basically just blood. He's, he's, he's like, he's a warning, I think, that blood is not enough that you can't just be, have this link of religion and and more than religion but like you know a, a, bl- a blood tie to someone and have that be enough to have them be on your side and be able to depend on them and well, all th- of these I, things i think that's gurian's flaw to an extent right because he sees everybody like it's the it's the like they're we're all we're all people which is true but like there's still like within that there's still like a division of like there's still like bad apples like even if even if berman's not in the cage yeah, cer- certainly Nakamuk recognizes that as one of Gurian's flaws. And he, they, they try to warn him, mm-hmm. and he's like, no, 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 he's fine. As the story goes on, Berman becomes a larger and larger figure. Um, we don't know until the end that he is this figure called Aleph, who in the very beginning of the book, 
had bullied uh, a brand new Orthodox Jewish student named Eliyahu from Bro- Eliyahu of Brooklyn. Um, who they also call Brooklyn. Who they also call Brooklyn. Um, and who speaks like an old Yiddish man. He had one of my favorite early characters. He had knocked off uh, Brooklyn's hat and and sort of bullied him a little bit, or stood by and laughed while other people bullied him. And Gurian doesn't know this. Nobody knows this, but Brooklyn. Brooklyn does not know his name is Josh Berman, so when Josh Berman's name come up, comes up, Brooklyn doesn't identify him as LF. And this feels like one of the most in term, the way you're describing the way that like, it plays out. It feels like one of the most cinematic reveals. It's like how did this never, how did the you know, never put this together? But like it feels like one of those just like oh right okay yeah yeah when he when he calls him LF at the end and Gurian's like wait hold on what what the fuck who is he yeah that's a lot and, and then they have to like break down and to for. To Brooklyn's credit, immediately he's like, from this point on, all is forgiven. We're all brothers, etc. But it, it, readers don't forgive him. The, the reader is not like, oh, it's cool. It's fine that you picked on him. Because we see Berman now as a well, bully. And, we'll be, and also because Brooklyn, Eliyahu, is drinking the Gurian Kool-Aid. Yeah. Oh, also, here's another incredibly important part. Because Berman had picked on Brooklyn, Nakamuk humiliates Berman. Nakamuk is on the bus and he has his legs stretched across and he's asking people for tolls so that he can lift his leg up so people can go by. And some kids are treating, I mean, it's kind of like a dickish thing to do, but it's also just like a regular dickish thing to do. Right. Um, and some kids are treating it like it's funny. Some kids are going like, you know, like they'll sing him a little song, they'll tell him a joke, etc. Um, but Berman won't do either of those things. Berman uh, is, I don't remember exactly what happens here, um, but partially because he had bullied Brooklyn, Nakamuk won't lift his legs up, and he thinks that Berman's disrespecting him, so he makes Berman crawl underneath his legs on his belly on the bus. And so Berman endures this humiliation before him, and this these are chickens that come home to roost at the very end of the novel. Mm-hmm. Because... Once Benji is in Benji, Benji is Nakamuk. Once he's in the gym and he's defeated Bam Slocum, which is a, one of the most triumphant parts of the entire the entire book. As played by Channing Tatum, Berman acts as though he doesn't know that Benji's on their side, and he shoots him with the nib, and then he tackles him, and he's laying on top of him and hitting him and things like that. And Benji is willing to accept that this is a mistake, and. Uh, but there's a division among them, and Berman starts fostering discontent among the quote-unquote Israelites within the gym. The ex-shovers, largely. Which are ex-shovers um, against the side of damage. There's a lot of tension between them because Benji is on the side of damage and Berman is on the is on the shovers. And even though Gurian is saying they're all brothers, he is also maybe subconsciously trying to thin the herd a little bit by having people kind of run errands and like making sure— even though he doesn't want to really admit it, that like there's not too many of a certain kind of person in a certain kind of place. Yeah, um, which Benji views as being snaky. Um, but the thing that I think is really important here, and we get this earlier when, um, so so we're going to rewind to co-captain Baxter. Co-captain Baxter is co-captain of the basketball team. He is one of the people who bullied Brooklyn very early in the book. And so Brooklyn and he have this like, enmity between them they really like at least brooklyn really hates him and so they're they're fighting for the whole thing um and then there's another one uh, another guy named shlomo cohen who who picks on the five 
wow, there's so much in this book that's hard that you have to yeah. go over again. So anyway, there's just a, imagine how I feel. I read it. And I you know there's a, there's a fire. There Benji pulls the fire alarm during this thing that happened. Blah 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 blah. And when the five attack Shlomo Cohen for for picking on them and saying, say hi to your friend Berman for me after they've, uh, uh, whatever. This is so hard to explain. Um, they chase him down. This is right after Gurin has explained to them the difference between Israelites and Jews. And they yell death to the Jew as they start beating on him. On Shlomo. On Shlomo. And this sends Brooklyn into a frenzy because he, as an Orthodox Jew, he is... He's witnessed, he's he's been subject to this kind of anti-Semitism, so he believes that they're being anti-Semitic. He believes that they're attacking based on, they're attacking him because he's a Jew, not attacking him because he's representative of this division between Jews and Israelites. Uh, Gurin is very specific in that he says... We're all Israelites. We're all Israelites, but he also says, like, I understand with, like, that death of the Jew thing signified badly, but I know what they mean by it, et cetera, et cetera. Fast forward to the very to the very well, because end. Because that, that in that fight is both, I think, overtly, and you don't realize in the time just how much of a line in the sand, like a point of no return, that is. Right. Like that is the beginning of the end for a lot of different ways, and you realize in the moment, like this is a big deal. And Gurian, I think, tries to stop the fight. Yeah, Gurian does try to stop the fight. That's when Bam Slocum pulls him away, and, um, and Benji stands by and doesn't help Gurian at yeah, all. Which we'll get to when, right. we, when we talk about Bam Slocum, um, as played by Channing Tatum. So fast forward to the, to the very end, and you have Berman who, you know, he's he's fermenting this dissent. They get Benji out of there. He's basically leading like a religious sect off this new religion. Kind yeah, of. That, that that like don't they, they? He wants to be feared. He says over and over again, "We want them to fear us." Yeah, we want them to fear us because he feels in danger. And when you feel in danger, you want to be you want to you want to be more feared than the person that has put you in danger. Gurian takes Nakamuk to the nurse to separate them, and he explains. He says, uh, Berman's the guy that shot you with the nib. Um, he accidentally reveals this information, and Benji over and over again is like, dude, you are stupid. You're fucking this up so badly. You don't know how snaky those people are. I understand what you're doing. I understand why you got me away from them, but you blah, blah, blah. Gurian gives him painkillers because he's broken his hand, and Benji goes unconscious. But he wants Jelly and and he he wants the side of damage out of the Jelly gym. his girlfriend. Jelly, Jelly's his girlfriend. He wants the side of damage out of the gym because he thinks that Berman's going to do something bad. And he's right. And he's right. Um, at the very end, when Berman is leading a revolution against Gurian, essentially, uh, Gurian's not in the gym. Benji comes running back in, and he takes out a lot of them. But eventually, they they beat him down and they tie him up and they kill him. At Berman's command. At Berman's command. Like, they, they're they all holding chairs or whatever. I, yeah. hold, I, I highlighted the thing because it's just, like, it's so... It's so violent. Well, because I think... Okay, so there's something that we've talked about before about, especially when a book is going, and this is a thousand-page book, that the first 800, I don't say are dense, but they're slow. They're, they're methodical. And then all of a sudden... There is the pep rally where Boy Star, this like pop star, Justin Bieber type, whatever, who went to California to make some music, came back. He's singing to the school. It's going to be this whole thing. They're going to charge up the school. Like, you know, we got this brand new scoreboard that whatever. Anyway, anyway, the last 200 pages, like you described to me before I started recording, it's like a sprint because yeah. it's just it's nonstop action. And I think there is a tendency and maybe, again, this is like a flaw in the way that I read things, but I think it's probably true of a lot of different people that when you're into something and it's moving, 
you're like flying through it because you're like, yeah. I just, I'm gobbling this up. And I feel like a lot of the violence, you can almost miss it because you're just like, oh, that guy, he, he died or whatever. It's just like, wait, what? Hold on, what? Yeah. And then here, when Berman is basically revealing his true villainy, it's, it like, it almost couldn't be more clear. Then Aleph said go and brought down his sap and the others their chairs and Benji was gone. Yeah. And then it's like end of a section and it's like, oh. Like he's like, this is calling out. Like this is again, like this is a serious thing. Because like other people, like there are other people who are killed, at least one of the persons killed in this riot, in the Gurionic War, whatever you want to call it. But it's not, I don't think, there's not as fine of a point put on it as when Benji is killed because it's like, it's not just chaos for chaos's sake or like vengeance or like, you know, for No good. one's caught up in the moment. It's, it's, this a, is, it's a plan that This is that cold-blooded yeah. murder. And even if he didn't have this- He's like, also helpless. He's, he couldn't be, like when, when DeStormy is killed, he's killed by June uh, and he might be about to kill Gurian. So she- She defends Gurian. She defends Gurian. So the one other guy that died is dies in this, I think more than one person died because- yeah. You, you you have other people that die along the way. I well, think. there's also people who have like like there's the casualties are yeah num but many but like so Benji is tied up and he's he's unconscious and they're just like kill him he's done kill him they don't Berman does Berman a laugh yeah. yeah and so also there's a shift there because Gurian starts referring to him as a laugh once he once yeah. he turns into evil but what the, here's the the point that I keep on getting on the, the scholars arrive then. They have Gurian from, from other schools. From other schools, they have Gurian tied up. It's like there's a standoff. Benji could kill, or sorry, not Benji. Berman could kill Gurian. He could kill Vinci. Gurian looks into uh, Brooklyn's eyes and he says, "I can't die," because he believes he's the Messiah here. Oh, this is also when he gives up the game and, and he yells, I, "Don't kill me! I'm the Messiah!" Right? Or he he yells. To, he doesn't say, "Don't kill me," but he yells to Berman, "I'm the Messiah." That like that you have to have faith in me. But he also does that for a purpose. He like he, it's like a signal in a, in a, in a way, right? But it's also he's also lying. Yeah, right. He's he's he's. Well, he, he might not be Gurian Gurian who, but he doesn't know. So he, you know, when he says I can't die, he might be lying, and that's something that to that point we don't think that Gurian has ever lied within the text. I think there's a certain part where I'm reading this, and I, I know that the whole thing is scripture written by Gurian, but yeah. there's still like. Especially toward the end, chunks is we're like, there's no way he makes it out of this narrative alive. Mm-hmm. But he does. He does, yeah. Which is like a miracle. And maybe that's proof that he is the Messiah. That like, there's no way that like. That's all not proof. Of, I know. But it's, yeah, it's. it's, it's it helps. Uh, yeah, it helps the case. It, it, it helps the case. Because uh, like in, in every enemy and everything that he comes across, police with the riot gear, helicopters, all the kids in the school, all the ex-shovers, all these different things. Yeah. He somehow kind of becomes Moses mm. parts yeah, the sea right I don't th- I don't think so for a but like it's, it it may it might it's be. making that parallel yes um the point that I keep on trying to get at here though is that um Gurian does extraordinary violence to Berman and all of these guys he breaks all of their fingers uh all the breaks shatters their hands into dust with the with the sap makes the ones who whose hands he doesn't shatter break their own fingers he marks uh berman with a the crack torch on his head burns a, a thing in it but before he does all of those things he says 
let's kill these fucking Jews. Yeah. So that's that's like the crossover between him being like worrying about things signifying and like crossover into militancy and and just like he he at that point he becomes an executioner. And then Emmanuel Lieben walks him back cuz he he says like Emmanuel Lieben who is who is one of the real heroes of the text, I think. One of the the unsung uh Describe who he is. He is a scholar from um, Solomon Schechter School. Who he's is, like leading one of the groups. He's leading one of the groups of scholars. He he visits. Uh, I think Gurian refers to him as the best scholar at Solomon Schechter, other than him. And he's the one who stops him because he says, "I'm not an executioner. I'm not doing this. I'm not. You're not going to kill these boys." So he is the one of the people in the novel that stands up against violence and stops it from happening. One of the only people that does that for the whole time. Because, to the point you said before, Aleph hit the floor on his side and squirmed. I went through his pockets till I found the cracked torch, straddled his torso, choked him left-handed, and branded his temples, each with a six, and branded a vav. Vav? Yeah. V-A-V on his forehead. Hey, he's marking him. He's marking him as an enemy. Because there's also the mark, there's there's less permanent marks that they're like, they call sharpies, like markers or... Darkers. Darkers. And like they, you they've know, all written damage across their own foreheads, and it's like a signet. But this is like a permanent, like yeah. this is like a branding. And the hands are branded too. He's he's pulped their hands, right? Their hands are just powder now. Yeah. So they're never going to get those hands back. The hands, because that's what happened to Benji. Like he's. Yeah, that's that. That could be. Yeah. So. Um. So that's Berman. We've just did Berman. That's one villain out of the way. We've got another six hours to do this in. Uh, where do you want to go? Who's the next villain? Uh, who do you think? There's students, there's the arrangement. There's too much. So with the arrangement, we've already talked about Brodsky and the ways in which Brodsky is kind of a villain. Yes. Um, Botha? Botha? Botha, who's the cage monitor. He's the guy that's in charge of the cage, who is um, essentially a sadistic teacher who is uh, afraid of losing face in front of the students and inf- afraid of losing face in front of the other people. So he uses his power in the worst, most manipulative ways. There's also, and I don't know the phrase offhand, but it's like he's given a little bit of power and he exploits it. Like he just, yeah. he's a nobody to anybody except for to the cage. He's like their villain because he's exerting like when Gurian's talking to Brodsky and he's just like, well, my main man, Scott Mucus, is singing. Also, by the way, through this entire pep rally, Gurian's, like, best friend or one of his really good friends is kid Scott Mucus, who's slow, mentally challenged, right? He's got cocktail uh, party syndrome. Which, which is... Uh, a thing about your heart being a certain size too big, and then it... And the, ent- the entire time all this violence is happening, this kid just singing, sitting, standing in the middle of the gym, just singing. Bob Marley and Radiohead. The entire time. Yeah. Gurian's, like... To, to Brodsky, Botha says we can't go. And Brodsky's like, no, 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 you're going to be able to go. Like, we're going to, you're starting to make up the time, but you're going to be able to go. Like, it's going to be fine. And then Botha's like, you're not going. Yeah. And that's, in another way, like, I keep saying this, but, like, that's the beginning of the end in a different way. But this has also been a thing that's been hundreds of pages of this guy being sadistic to these kids, like, making fun of kids for, like, having hair, like, like, like physical yeah not letting not letting them go to the bathroom not answering um he's he's an example of the ways in which authority figures on a day-to-day basis undermine people's humanity yeah he he doesn't let Benoit go to the bathroom Benoit ends up peeing himself he won't let them go see their friends sing he uh enjoys putting getting them into trouble in various various ways he's he's a, and it feels like as this, as maybe maybe it's not but it feels like as the narrative goes on like the cage becomes more restrictive and like they put up more like physical barriers and just like he's really like isolating all of these kids 
Yeah. No one's allowed to sit near Gurian, right, until the cage fills up, and then he there aren't enough carols to sit people away from him, so he ends up sitting next to people. Um, so Botha is is an example of petty authoritarianism, right? He he's he's an example of Hannah Arendt's banality of evil. He's a guy that's doing his job, and because he's been given the power and responsibility to do his job in a certain way, he does it in a way that he feels he's fulfilling it. Um, and that happens to be incredibly evil because he's been empowered by people like Brodsky. Right. But I don't I don't know that Brod, either Brodsky doesn't know the extent to which he's abusing this power. Well, he's turning or, a blind eye. Or fully knows. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I yeah. think I think I think Brodsky's better thinks of himself as being better off. Not well, and that's knowing. the point of like he can do what he wants because he's keeping 99 percent or maybe 92 percent or whatever. The exactly. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. So he doesn't. He And and. Uh, Botha is the person, the first victim of the side of damage. They they attack him and they break his shoulder, largely incidentally because he uh, accidentally touches Gurian's head. So Gurian explodes at him because Gurian has this thing where if you touch his head, he'll explode. It feels like they obliterate Botha. Yeah, kick him in the face. Benoit kicks him in like breaks his teeth and and Levon gets in gets in his face and whispers to him says something I don't remember what he says um but he says like Levon is a character who doesn't speak throughout the entire uh throughout the entire book but he says he whispers something to Botha because this is their tormentor this is the guy that yeah. is is abusive to most of them on a daily basis and that was the moment for me where I'm like oh I've been kind of reading this wrong the entire time like not that I wasn't taking him or them seriously but I also didn't expect them because I think you're lulled into because I think the other dichotomy here, and I keep rephrasing the sentence, is that like even though literally every war has been fought in the name of God or whatever, right? Like it feels like there's the scholar and the warrior do not intersect in mm-hmm. a way. Yeah. And I think I was misreading that I'm like, okay, so they're like they're planning an uprising. He's literally giving these kids weapons, but like, they're not going to use it because like they're religious. He's religious. He's, he's on the side of good or whatever. Right. Like, even though he's been cast aside and damaged in multiple ways, he's educated and pure of heart in a way. And because it's told from his perspective that I think when they actually do the thing, I'm like, Oh, I've been misreading this entire thing. And I think the first, like, 750 pages kind of lull you into a little bit of like not security or whatever but just that i don't think i had no idea that like this was going to end in a riot oh okay i think it like it makes it makes all the sense in the world mm-hmm. i just did not see it coming and i think that it's was an owen meanie trick there's no other way that this book could end other than that i don't think yeah also comparing to owen meanie i texted you like very very early in the book Gurian is just kind of like making some trouble. Like they have this brand new beautiful scoreboard that they want to show off. They're going to host this yeah. like rival game, this basketball with like their rival high school, rival middle school or whatever. And he's like using the penny gun and like shooting out letters. But he's like practicing on a basketball court in a school. <laughs> and I'm like, it's like they're practicing the shot. And like he's shooting things, different yeah. kind of shooting things. I'm just like, all right, I see you on me. Uh, also, the violence that's done against Botha is interesting because it's so extreme and because you hate Botha to that point, but the violence against him is so extreme that you're made to feel a little bit sick by it. So you think like... Well, it's like because no one deserves this. Like what he's doing, no one deserves, but also nobody deserves this. No, Nobody deserves to be put in a cage and nobody deserves to be tortured. Yeah. It's both. 
It's both things, and because and it's two both wrongs things, do not make a right. Because it's right. I guess, yeah, I guess I wouldn't. I wouldn't phrase it like that because that's like cliche. Um, hey, man. <laughs> I think it's more complicated than two wrongs don't make a right. Uh, but also, like they're not trying to make it right. They're just trying to make, exactly. They're trying yeah. to make it even. Yeah, right? they're not trying to make it right. They're trying to make it. That's a better way to phrase it. Um, Less cliche. They're yeah. So so when, once that happens, you're just like, I don't know if I'm with this. I don't. I don't know it. Like yeah, that's bad. But I don't. I'm not sure that this is what they're doing is good because then you know you were saying it's like a cult book or a cult story which absolutely it is but i at this point you're like oh no this is a school shooting like they're like okay we're gonna yeah, block, the, no school we're gonna block the exits we're gonna guard the exits mm-hmm. we're gonna hide we're gonna all have weapons it was like we need to talk about kevin yeah you have uh, immediate anyone anyone that's roughly our age has immediate flashbacks to Columbine, things like, you know, they had notebooks where they marked off where you could put shooters to to pick people off as they came out of the school. Like you immediately reflect on that because that's what culture is now. We have this like militarized version of everything where uh, and, and a violent version of everything because that's just the world that we live in. And Gurion also comes of age. Like he's born in 1996. They, they say his birthday is like June 96 or whatever. And he comes of age in the era of school shootings and 9-11. Also, like these five-year-olds like analyzing 9-11. I'm just like, this is weird. But, like, you know. it. Yeah, I have a theory. I have a theory on all. It's not, not my theory. It's Emmanuel Liebman's theory or, or Brooklyn's theory. Go for it. On that. Well, there's, you know, when he breaks down that section, uh, there's interstitials where other people start speaking. And there's this part where... I think it's Eliyahu starts speaking and he says like uh, he's talking about how people in the cage, people who are around Gurian begin to speak like Gurian. And so do you. And well, I think ever I think I think that's something that happens with this book. Uh, I, I, and I, I was I was saying that to, to you. I wish that I'd written that part down, but I didn't. Um, I was saying that to you, that, like there are parts in this book that there's misspelling of words. There's. Well, you texted me a thing. You might, I might, I'm going to look for it, but yeah, keep going. Where I think that, I, I think that he notes something that is like almost like literal magic to me because he says to be around Gurian and to be in his presence and to read this book means to, to mimic Gurian and to start uh, speaking the way that he does, et cetera, et cetera. I think that that happens with me when I read this book. I start spelling fucking, fucking, like F U C K E N instead of I N. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the use of the word uh, like TCH, which is like from the very jump. I realize that this is a book you love because it's like what this means equals this other thing. It's just like it's language. It's like it's, yeah, it yeah, says yeah. This. Exactly. it actually means this. Exactly. Yeah. And and so like I find I find myself using those techniques and using those kinds of thought processes. Um, and I realize that I'm changing the way that I speak and the way that I am because I'm in the presence of Gurian. So what he is saying is that Gurian is the kind of scholar that when people are around him, they become much more intelligent. Just being in his presence allows them this level of analysis sure. that is far beyond their years. So which explains all the people around him, Benji, Vinci, all the people in the cage uh, start speaking much more intelligently than maybe they would normally, which I think reflects also maybe on the the scholars at, at Solomon Schechter being much more intelligent, et cetera. Well, I think, I think his, his, reach and his impact is vast and i think even the kids that like aren't characters in the book until the end mm-hmm. or just only correspond via email or whatever like gurian has touched them in a way that like i think i think this 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 novel builds out the world in a very real way that feels earned because it's like you see it 
firsthand the way he's shaping these kids in the cage. Yeah, and they all call him rabbi too, which is it means teacher, right? Yeah. So they, they they refer to him as that. Did you find this text message? No, I forgot that we talk about the TV shows we watched. I got a lot of <laughs> texts about. Yeah, the don't, don't don't worry about it because I think that I just said everything that I that I said in those text messages anyway. Right now, you can never bleed another person. Wait, yeah, I, I found the stuff. Whatever. Oh, uh, that might be something that we want to. That you can never bleed another person. That's from another thing. That, like I, I, I wrote that down because I think that that's some of the best writing in the 21st century. Um, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that at some point. Well, there's also the thing you said that both says he'll be key. he'll keep giving us all the trouble he can. Vincy says all of it, and Brooklyn says he's been giving us all the trouble he can. Green says what the monitor has given us is all the trouble he can. Yeah. So I think like that's an interesting point that we'll get to later, maybe. Um, we we're on Botha. Do you want to move on to another character than Botha? Sure. So these are these are the villains we're going through. Botha, Disormi. Disormi is an easy one. He's a gym teacher, but he's, he's like al- he's also a pervert. He's a pervert. Yeah. So we, we we feel easy about him being a villain because he is this person that uh, seats girls, twelve twelve year old twelve year old girls in the front while stretching so that he can see the outlines of their vaginas and he looks at their nipples and et cetera et cetera. And so we immediately recognize him as being a villain. And also seems to like very early, even before we get into the sexual stuff, like engenders like a hostile locker room, like is okay with like levels of brutality just because mm-hmm. it's like, you know, man up. Yeah, and he seems to, once the riot starts, he seems to enjoy the idea of kicking the shit out of Gurian, even though he's an adult man and Gurian is a twelve year old. Yep. Uh, a ten year old. Um, so they're in the middle, you know, and, and June kills him because, uh, which is like wonderful and victorious. I'm glad that June kills him because then it is like one of the girls kills him, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like, like Gurian, like a lot of them are called, there's the great scene where before they raid the gym during the pep rally, they're like, I call this guy. I call this guy. I'm going to get, uh, I call Boystar. I call, uh, Lonnie. Um, and a lot of them want to get Disormi, right? So it's good that it's good that June gets Disormi because yeah. she's probably been the victim of some of Disormi's staring and for sure. curving. There's another it's not a particular villain, but there's the which I think isn't directly I'm, I'm saying this in a way that like is not true, but like isn't directly paid off, but is like the impetus for everything in that Gurian, one of Gurian's other main enemies is the Jewish parents of all of his Jewish friends. Yeah, I think we can manifest that in in Rabbi Unger. Because his dad successfully defends, he acquits, he gets this Nazi acquitted. Yeah. And as they're leaving the courtroom, all these Jewish parents who have been protesting and picketing the entire court, the, the, the entire trial, the entire time, start throwing signs, start throwing all this different stuff. And like they start like a riot outside the courthouse and the Nazi eventually dies of his injuries. But Gurian's father, who's just literally just doing his job, a noble job, not a job that he wants to, he doesn't want to defend, but like that's just what he's doing, gets sent to the hospital with his injuries. Hey, this reflects Brodsky and the side of damage and, and the Israelites in the gym who kill, maybe kill the bad guys, but then there's also collateral damage. Sure. Right? So there's like a neat little parallel there. And so Gurian, after he realizes this, like, oh, I'm going to get revenge on all of them. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and it's not only that, like, there's that, but also they, like, blocked him from corresponding with his friends, his former friends and everything. And just, like, this sort of good meaning in a way, but also not fully seeing the full picture group of people, I guess, as personified by Rabbi Unger, who, like, is later interviewed and stuff. But explain, talk about Rabbi Unger. Yeah, I will say that before, before we get into that, that 
the parents' fears end up being justified by the end of the book. It's like you probably should keep your child away from Gurian because he will get them into some shit. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But Rabbi Unger is a uh, essentially another both a type, um, but he is he is the headmaster at Solomon Schechter School, and he gets into a dis a, a disagreement with Gurian about uh, what carbon dating. He doesn't. He, Gurian is uh, there are students that are questioning him about fossils and about the idea of the Earth being more than a certain number of years old, and they're saying, "But what about carbon dating?" And instead of um, Instead of answering in an honest way or even saying that he doesn't know, he starts making things up. And Gurian calls him out on it immediately. Rabbi Unger being the type of person that he is, the type of teacher that he is, who's a, a bully, um, not only is very petty in how he deals with Gurian, but starts questioning his Jewishness. Mm-hmm. Um, because, because he's black. Yeah, because his mom is is uh, one of the lost tribes, etc. And he... Uh, there's this thread throughout the book where people tell Gurian that he's not the Messiah, and Gurian says, I might be. Which is true. And, and But Unger says, one thing that we do know is that the Messiah will be Jewish, which is like the implication being that Gurian's not Jewish. Right. Which is a very mean-spirited stab at Gurian's entire identity, and he's essentially fighting a nine-year-old kid, ten-year-old kid, uh, being incredibly mean to him. And losing. And losing. And losing. Um, and so he is another example, like a lot of the bad guys in this book are petty adults, petty mm-hmm. adults with authority issues that feel like being undermined rather than looking at Torah or looking at uh, education as a quest toward knowledge through inquiry. Um, they view it as an exchange of knowledge from one party to another. Uh, and and when their authority is questioned, they react very badly because they're bad teachers. Essentially, they're they're not good at their jobs. They don't know how to deal with kids. They maybe don't even like kids, and so they um, exist in this place where they're willing to be abusive. Um, so that's Unger is is like a real real villain in that in that sense. Um, Unger, Botha, Disarmi. Brodsky, these are all villains that exist in in the bureaucratic sense, in the in the sense that they're part of the arrangement, part of the group of people that tries to get kids to act a certain way, but not act in a way that has anything to do with being a better person, but act in a way that allows them to function in a society that is completely unfair and has always treated people like them poorly. Um, so those are the villains that are part of the arrangement. I think that's all of them. I think that's all of the adult, adult villains of the text. Um, after that, we have at least two more kid villains. Kid villains is a funny way to put it. Um, Beyond Berman. One of them is um, Bam Slocum. Yep. Who is a villain in a really strange way. Well, he's like, you texted me, and I, I said it twice during the episode, that like it would be funny if Channing Tatum just played like a grown-ass Channing Tatum played this kid, because he's just like, like again, these are seven-year-old, seventh graders, not seven-year-old, seventh graders. But like he gets on the microphone, he's just like, hey, "Here's why I can dunk." It's like you can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no way you can dunk. But like, Gurian refers to him as being superhero shaped. We're we're led to believe that he is like. I think he's to a certain extent like the embodiment of like prom king kind of yeah, right. Yeah, like he's just yeah, like, yeah. He's prom not, king not cool. inherently not. He's not. He's not necessarily evil, but he's just like the embodiment of traditional stereotypical bully evil yeah and he's very um uh almost spiritual about it he's very he's very zen he has this idea of himself as uh 
a symbol rather than as a human being, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, he's a false deity in some ways because one of his main things is, you know, don't take my name in vain. Right. He believes himself as like the ruler of this place and he's a crowd pleaser. He wants to. The thing that he's most worried about is pleasing everybody and then being well liked. Uh, he's not worried about it, but he does what needs to be done to be well liked. And and um, he has a rivalry with uh, his former childhood best friend, Benji Nakamuk. Um, and Benji, every day, once a week, whatever, writes Slocum Dies Friday on, on the thing. And he, his name is Barnum Slocum, but he goes by Bam Slocum. And he, and he says, nobody calls me Barnum because... Once you start using my name, you demystify me. You diminish me when you take my name in vain like that. So he views himself as a messiah type figure as well. Um, Which is like, you know, that's the athlete. That's the star athlete. That's the, the like, because I'm sure, and I don't, it might even be in the thing. I don't remember. But like, the Stormy is probably like, hey, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Because he's the, he's the captain of the basketball team. So he's the arrangement like manifest. He's the kid that they're He's the future. For. Yeah, he's where all the resources go. The resources don't go to the cage. They buy a beautiful scoreboard. Yeah, insofar as, like, the resources that go to the cage go to the cage to keep those kids from interacting with other kids. Those resources go to buy a scoreboard and to make sure that Slocum's position in life gets elevated over and over again because then he can represent... Aptikasik. He, he can represent Aptikasik, which is what his speech at the pep rally is about, right? He's saying, like, go home. I didn't score. Go home and tell your parents that you scored, right? He's uh, like he he embodies leadership by making people feel good about themselves. He's like very much the stereotype of Max Weber's um, idea about charismatic authority, whereas like Brodsky and all of these people are Max Weber's traditional authority. I do want to I, I highlighted the thing he says because I thought it was very funny in a very ego way. Yeah, Barnum Slocum. This is like because this is part of the. Part of the text where it's described from video footage. Yeah, it's epistolary. It's epistolary. They're using documents outside of the main narrative. Barnum Slocum pacing mid-court to the lengths the half-court microphone court allows raises voice. I want you to say to your parents tonight on this bread of victory that I baked, I spread the butter of glory. (laughs) I churned with much dedication and elbow grease. Tonight I sup on my victory, mama, my glory, dad. Would you like to try a bite? Yeah, he's like. Again, keeping in mind this is like a 12-year-old. Yeah, he's very funny. He's very funny. Um, so he is, uh, you know, I think he's, he's the representative of, um, he's the child representative of the arrangement. So that's why he's a bad guy. And he's Benji's nemesis because of the stuff that happened when they were kids, but also because he's like a negative photograph of Benji, Mm -hmm. right? Like he's the one that everyone has lost faith in Benji and thought he was a freak and, but they believe in Bam. And it's interesting at the end because like, uh... The, that that one kid, the the kid that they fake as being a hostage, at the end she's he's like, if you didn't burn anyone's house down, you'd be a fucking basketball player just like them. And Benji's like, that's not true. You don't know me. But like, you can kind of tell that that might be true. Yeah. That that Benji, if it had Benji not been diminished in the eyes of, you know, the world as like a sane, structured person, he he may have been Bam Slocum. Sure. Is there? Another kid villain? Oh, there's the maybe the worst villain in the whole text, Boystar. Boystar is like, he's kind of funny though too, because he's delusional. Yeah. Um. What What makes Boystar the maybe the text's biggest villain? Do you think? Well, I think he is talking about false deities. Like he is idolized. He is raised up. 
yeah, emotionalize and fanalize and dressalize you with my eyes. Yeah, his lyrics are real fucked up for a 12 Sounds like a banger. Um, you know, he's a villain very simply because he does one of the worst things in the, in the book, which is he poisons Scott Mucus. Mm-hmm. He gives him the nutmeg to prevent him from singing because he doesn't want to have to sing with a retard. Yeah, his words. Yeah, and... Um, Just to make sure you're not on the record with a hard R. Yeah. This is Shreds I'm talking to now. Also, he is manipulative right like he i think in a certain way he is egotistical like in a different kind of way like he is he's similar to bam in that he is given extra permissions because of a talent even though yeah, like, the sure. talent is maybe for sure, for sure, for sure. less manifest and just whatever but he's like a, just like a good looking kid who can kind of sing or whatever he's been told that he's special and then that has gone to his head. And so he's abusive to all the people around him. But remember, in the, in the very beginning, the first time that we're introduced to him, he's, I forget what he says to June, but he calls her a slut. And he, he, he I think, says something about her dad fucking her or something like that. I don't remember. Um, which, which tracks directly to later on in the text, we learn that June kissed Boystar. He was the first person that she ever kissed. Mm-hmm. And the reason why she kissed him was because he told her something that was true about herself when they were doing seven minutes in heaven but we never find out what that is because she doesn't want to tell Gurian or do, or do uh, we no she tells she tells Gurian uh, it's pretty clear that she was molested yeah because she she says over and over again to him well there's a be- there's actually a really beautiful moment with her with Gurian where he's like she's like do you do you love me and he's like I love you more and she's like do you love me because of this thing and he goes no she goes do you love me in spite of this thing and he goes I love you regardless of that thing that happened to you so they don't talk about it again, but the implication is that uh, I think I think probably the implication is that her father molested her because she doesn't want to. She said, "I remember her saying, I don't want to tell you. I don't, I don't even want to have to tell you like that this thing happened at all.' But like you kept pushing me." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of June and Gurian, the Yuds. Oh, you're doing the Clinton thumb thing to me. Yeah, June and Gurian share uh, birthmarks of of Yuds, which mean God. Yeah, something like that in in Hebrew. Yeah. And I think that also transitions into another thing that I want to say is that the book is also filled with, to a certain extent, like there are probably a couple dozen illustrations that I think probably are reflective of the notes that you were saying before about like where they're marking people to stand and block doors and whatever, but just like giving you a, a picture, like a, a literal picture of like what the what the space looks like. Yeah. But it's done in a way that's very cool where like, you know, instead of an object, it's the letters that form the word... I don't describe this in a way that like makes any sense, but like it's like a basketball hoop. It'll say like hoop. It'll just say like H O O P, like going around in a circle, and it's just it's like a very yeah, cool yeah. visual Sh- thing. chair shaped like a chair. And, and just I've never seen that before, and mm-hmm. I think it's just so interesting. Yeah, I think it reflects some of the stuff in the text about language being representative sure. of real life, solid objects, etc. Another reason that you probably love this book is because they talk about at least two of your favorite novelists that philip roth is uh, uh, yeah he's, this entire book he even shows up as a character at one point yeah he's a real a real uh a real character in the book they talk about don delillo a couple times mm-hmm. and they're like who's philip roth he's like the greatest american novelist alive who isn't delillo or mccarthy said ori how do you spell delillo i said ori spelled delillo what should i read end zone to start with then white noise mccarthy's blood meridian though I'd, I'd read that one first it seems more your style i thanked him for the rex and took away his camera said where's the recording it's just like I, I know your taste in uh, many things by now, mm-hmm. but there are certain things I'm, just, I'm reading. I'm like, yep, that's <laughs> check. It's like language. Yep. Okay. Meaning. Yep. Okay. Uh, other, you know, this. Okay. Religion. Okay. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this book um, like, checks all of those things. Yeah. Is this your favorite book? Ever? No. 
What's your favorite book? I don't don't have one. Is this one of your favorite books? Yeah, sure, sure. Where do you think this ranks among, you think it's the best book of the 21st century? Best book of the 21st century so far. Is this the best or the second best book that we've covered the podcast? Or is it hard to compare to Owen Meany? I don't know. I mean, I think I think it's I think it's a good book to put up against Owen Meany. I think there is the first worthy competitor that we have to Owen Meany. Yeah, Secret History probably is up there too. Maybe you think that, you um, think that's on par with these? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe Endzone is another. You know, they 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 do such different things. All of them. Um, I think we're well. I guess Secret History is like like Endzone's like two hundred pages. Like you can yeah. Read it in like, I think in, as far as my personal t- personal taste wise. Instructions is probably my favorite book. Yeah. Although, you, did you have to lie down at any point after? No. Um. I don't. Um. Yeah. There, there... I, I think. I think. Owen oh, Meany does more of a magic trick. Yeah. There's not as much of that in this. Although there, there are there is stuff in this where I feel really. I don't know how he did it. Also, he's he's younger than I was when he when he wrote this book. Younger than you are now. Yeah. He was. I mean, he won a Young Lions award for it. Young Lions award yeah, goes to people novel. under thirty-five. So, which is insane. So here's some stuff from um, Wiki about him because I don't know that there is a Wiki on the instructions, but there's one on Adam Levin, selected by Powell's Indispensable Book Club, and what you were telling me before, the Rumpus Book Club. Yeah. Some initial reviews drew comparisons to David Foster Wallace and Philip Roth. Some reviewers praised the dark humor, the depth of the setting, and the commentary on Jewish identity. Some criticized the book's length, of course, because it was over more than a thousand pages, but others praised it. And then he wrote a collection of short stories published after this called Hot Pink. Hot and then Pink. a second novel, Bubblegum, came out at the beginning of the pandemic in April of 2020. Yeah. Did you read Bubblegum? Yeah. Is it good? Yeah, it's good. It's not as good as this one, but it's good. It's hard to... Man, it's just like... You got your whole... It's that, that thing that people say about bands. You have your whole life to write your first novel, and then you have two, like a, two years to write your next novel. Yep. You know, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. We're not done talking about the book, though, yet. There's still stuff that we have to talk about. There is that specific thing that I wanted to read, which I thought was one of the be- some of the best writing of ever. Well, I also do want to say that the, the novel opens with them waterboarding each other. Sure. Yeah. Which is just like, oh, okay, that's a way to get into a book. Yeah. Once Ben Benoit uh, pees himself, and they're all sympathizing with him. Is this the hyperscoot? Yeah. It says, the rest of us studied Benoit. He rocked his torso like he was crying or praying, and there were tears on his cheeks, but they weren't the weeby kind. He was squeezing the sides of his seat, struggling to scoot out of both his grip and failing, the veins in his hands throbbing. Those muscles in his neck and the cage seemed to dim, and he to smolder, his bright white hair drawing light from the periphery, channeling it down to his face. It became red in a glow, a speeding fire truck face, yet his chair remained still as a photo of a chair. It hurt to look at him trying so hard. It hurt the way it hurts to watch a baby stumble across a room, how your left side tenses when the baby's about to fall to his right, your right when the baby's about to fall to his left, and it hurt like watching great boxing does. The twelfth round tightness gripping your chest and how your hands wince like Vinci's on block telegraph punches the gasp and shiver when a knockdown blow lands and then all the startled blinking it hurt like visceral descriptions of hurt hurt and it hurt all of us and at all at the same time and we all knew at the same time that that was how it was for all of us at the same time and it is true that you cannot box a man who you are watching on television and it's true that you can't balance a stumbling baby who's out of reach you can never bleed enough from another's wounds and no one, no matter whose son he says he is, can bleed from yours. But your body can describe the condition of another's. Your body can describe the condition to you. And that kind of description is also an action. 
The action is sympathy. Sometimes you can push it. Sometimes it pushes. Our vicarious suffering at the sight of Benoit's struggle couldn't get his muscles strong enough to free his chair from both his grasp. But the line between description and action in our own muscles was thin, erasable. We had our own chairs. Like that that description of sympathy is um, really, really manifestable. And then that leads directly to that part where Botha says, keep doing that and I'll give you as much trouble as I can. And then they, in response, say... Do you hear that? The monitor said he's been giving us as much trouble as he can, as much trouble as he can. The monitor says he's been giving us as much trouble as he can, which is when they all realize in collective unity that the amount of trouble that he can give them is not equal to the amount of trouble that they can give him. Right. So they respond with the hyperscoot. Yeah. Which is? A bunch of chairs squeaking on the ground at the same time, which creates a deafening noise. One of those things that students do to take down teachers who are abusing their power which gurian is able to control in a way that like kind of i think maybe shouldn't it should but shouldn't like impresses other teachers like oh this kid's got (laughs) yeah because there are other teachers who are not evil right like there are teachers that they like that like um miss pinge yeah that he one of the kids i don't remember who it was like miss gleam said something like called her a name like to be condescending she like was like cool with it she's like oh it's like i do it now but like not to be mean there just like it's just like a thing that we do or whatever right like there's teachers they respect and I think that not necessarily approve of what Gurian's doing, but are like, there's something special about this kid who like can control this yeah. like call me Sandy's like that. This group of other students that the school has written off mm-hmm. listen and are able to behave when someone treats them the right way. Yeah, generally teachers who haven't written off those students. Yeah, right. You you see those teachers and you think that they're doing they're actually doing their job. What else about this book? Uh, I mean, we can talk about the protagonists. There's, you know, lots of protagonists in here. What about June? What about the relationship between Gurian and June? What about the idea of him converting her to Judaism? Well, I said that, but you said that that doesn't actually happen. It doesn't work. Well, I don't know that it does, because when she tries to enter the valley, God starts crashing the walls of the water down on everybody. So they're, they're like at a, like a lake or something, right? Yeah, it's Lake Michigan. Yeah. One of the great lakes. And it literally seems to part. It like parts, it's so that, in the, Red so that the scholars and the side of damage can escape. Right. Or maybe not the side of damage. Maybe it's just the scholars can escape. And Gurian starts to, he's holding hands with June and he steps toward it. And when he steps toward it, holding hands with June, the walls of water start falling because they don't want June to go with him. Even though when he can, so he falls in love with this, this is sort of the tautology, right? He falls in love with this girl, Eliza June Watermark, who has red hair. Yeah. And Yud birthmarks on her arms. Yud, Yud birthmarks. He's like, of course she's an Israelite because I would not be allowed to like, yeah, God, would not, God wouldn't fall would not, me in love with a, with someone who was not yeah Jewish, not, not Israelite. And she's like, Oh no, I'm not, I'm not. What, why would you think that I, and he's like, well, I can convert you. And she's like, okay, convert me. And her, he's like, okay, do this thing or whatever. And you know, if, if God doesn't want this to happen, he, he'll stop it. And Adonai does not do the thing that he often does to Gurian, which paralyzes his muscles and yells no at him when, yeah. he's, when he's doing something that he knows is bad. He's like, I, I, I guess you're converted. Yeah. And then even when he, when he tells his parents later, his parents are like, mm, not, not really. Like, Everyone resists this idea. This is the cause of his falling out with Rabbi Salt. This is the cause of much anger between him and his father. Well, I think it's the first time he, instead of being a leader, tries to exhibit messianic power mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. rabbinical power. Yeah. And it also um, is a source of partial tension between him and Benji, right? Because he and Benji are best friends. Benji is in love with a Jewish girl in the cage named Jelly Rothstein. 
is resistant to the idea of Israelites and Goyim getting married mm-hmm. in his case. So Benji assumes that Gorin would be resistant to him and Jelly. Right. Because Jelly is, is an Israelite. So um, that's a source of tension because Benji just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand why this is something that it feels so perfect for him. And he, he, he can't convince his best friend that it's right. Yeah. Benji is an interesting character. What do you what do you think of him? Maybe I was I don't know if I was caught off guard, but it feels like he's biased and I think because we're or blinded by Gurian's point of view that it feels like Benji's biased side until all of a sudden he's not. But if you like maybe look at it more objectively, you can see that there's like a a division growing that Gurian is not because he's he's blind to by choice a lot of different things about the world around him, mm-hmm. I think. And he just assumes that people are with him or that people are good, or that the people who are with him are good, or whatever. And then when there's that fight and Benji does not defend him or help him, it he, it snaps into focus that like things are not exactly what it seems. Right. Okay, so Benji, uh, uh, the, the fight is when Bam Slocum overpowers Gurian in the two-hill field, carries him away from uh, trying to break up the fight between the five and Shlomo Cohen, and... He really manhandles and embarrasses Gurian. He squeezes his guts until Gurian pukes, and Benji stands by doing nothing. And Benji explains it by being it's a matter of loyalty and a duration of loyalty. That I was friends with Bam first, and even though I'm not friends with him now, right? Like that's yeah. that's his explanation. Yeah. And like the same thing, like he's like, I hate my mom. But if it was between my mom and my dad, my mom I would choose my mom because I was with her for nine months. Even though, even though his dad is cool, his dad taught him how to swear and how to go swimming and stuff like that but his mom and his mom beats him and, and is drunk which is a very black and white way to look at the world like it it's both I well think it uncomplicates things it it's admirable and also really stupid he's created a system of ethics that he follows which is all you can do yeah in the world right and he sticks to that system of ethics and then he breaks it he 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 breaks it because he says remember there there's there's a long explanation in that letter of why he writes Slocum dies Friday every week. And he says, I could add one word to that uh, that would that would infuriate Slocum. And that word is Barnum, Barnum. right? Because he would be taking his name in vain. And he says he doesn't do that because he's loyal to him. But also he knows that every time that he writes Slocum dies Friday and another Friday passes and Slocum doesn't die, he knows that he's building Slocum's reputation He because the people know who's writing that and they know that if Benji won't beat up Slocum, then they have someone that is essentially on their side because the entire school fears Benji. So he's bolstering through his loyalty to fears Slocum. Fears Benji or fears, Bo- fears Slocum? No, they fear Benji. They don't okay. fear Slocum. They love Slocum. Slocum doesn't want to be feared. Slocum wants to be loved, right? They fear Benji, but they know that as long as Benji's not going to beat up Slocum, maybe couldn't beat up Slocum, maybe even fear Slocum, that they are under like this protective umbrella of Slocum's. Until the end when he actually does write Barnum Slocum Dies Friday. One of the best moments of the entire book. Barnum Slocum Dies Friday. And then you get that fight, which is like one of the best parts of the whole book too yeah and action is hard to write that's the thing that i think is is like underestimated how difficult action is to write especially for like a literary novelist i feel like some people like you know stephen king can write action well i'm I'm sure uh fucking jack reacher guy can write action well whatever but like this is a book that is not an action book right it's a book about words it's a book about language it's a book about like basically studying the torah yeah and then we have this scene that's like 
sort of models Torah in a way in in its extraordinary violence. How um, so? Like, what do you mean? Well, there's you know if you if you religious texts are incredibly violent. There's yeah. there's war and there's uh, you know Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels destroying an entire town. Um, there's King David uh, collecting the foreskin of a thousand Philistines. There's all sorts of shit like that in, in the Bible. That's just like or Torah Bible. Uh, gospel yeah uh whatever like that's incredibly violent and but it's mostly not that right it's mostly like this intellectual pursuit of trying to understand something that is completely ununderstandable um so it's i think it mimics that in in an interesting way which actually this reminds me i think that's really important is that when brodsky's talking about numbers and he's talking about 99 percent, right that immediately reflects gurian talking about uh, uh the sodom and gomorrah that like God accepts a certain amount of collateral damage, right? Because he's saying, like, if you can find 10 good men, then he's like, then God walks away from that from that conversation. Because, like, if they tried to bargain it down further, God wouldn't go for that. It's like, you can't find five good men. No, that's not part of it. Ten, ten good men, which is a certain percentage of damage that God is willing to accept of innocence. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, Brodsky is reflecting this, like, religious idea of collateral damage. Uh, when he's saying that, like, you know, this cage works, and here's why the cage works. We're sacrificing a certain amount of people so that everyone else can thrive. I think I think the other interesting thing about the novel is that we don't really get a sense that the uh, the rest of the school is thriving because we don't really see from their perspective. It feels like the school is broken, but maybe the school is not broken. Like, I, I mean, that's a very simplistic way to look at it. But I think because so much of this is focused from where we are and the kids who are, like, punished so the rest can thrive. Yeah. We don't really get a sense that this is like a successful school or not. I think we're. Well, the thing is that all schools are broken because all kids have it tough, right? Even kids that don't have, like, you have all these moments, like Blake Acer writing Blake Acer, who's in, who's a shover, writing "We damage we" on the on the uh, dumpster because he he wants to be part of this idea of damage. He he also feels his own personal pain and like wants to be wants that pain to be reflected. Wants to do damage on on. Uh, the school um and like damage is is not quantifiable but what is quantifiable is how many kids get into ivy league schools yeah or whatever and so like schools are measured in numbers like how brodsky does but it's not measured in like there's no happiness index for high schools right Right. like blue ribbon schools aren't like the school with the most happy kids right it's the school with the most kids that do well on standardized testing and go to the best colleges and things like that so you know i it's obviously not a successful school because when given the opportunity to express how damaged they are and when given the opportunity to cause extraordinary violence, like, there's obviously an epidemic of damage. Yeah. I feel like there's a million more things to talk about. I know. What else? What else do you want to... I don't have here? anything else. I, I'm just... I'm, I'm willing to talk about whatever you want to talk about. Because, again, I, 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 I don't want to act like I didn't enjoy this book. I didn't like this book because I did. Yeah. But it's overwhelming. It is, for sure. And I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but you came into this more prepared than I did because you've you've been thinking about this for for years, literally for years. So it, Twelve years. I don't know where to go because mm-hmm. I still I think I'm processing it, and I think, especially when he's writing at the end about the act of rereading, I think that that's very true. And I think I was saying to you like I would rather almost like have like a crib sheet or like a cheat sheet of like okay, here's who this person is because like there's like there's so there's dozens of kids. I, yeah, I, w- I would probably I would bet that there are a hundred characters in this book. It's a lot of kids. Yeah. So what's what you know? Uh, without going too much further, you want to read Meg's email and see if that inspires any other thoughts. Yeah, I will say before we do that though that uh, very clearly in this book, God is real. 
right? There is a very specific, uh, you know, his father sets that guy on fire through reciting the Sephiroth. God parts the Lake Michigan for them to escape. So there is like a very real thing. And Gurian is specific in saying that that's not a miracle because he didn't do it. God did it. Gurian himself had no control over the parting of that sea the way that Moses parted the sea. Moses parted right. the Red Sea, so Moses caused a miracle. When God does it, not, it's not a miracle. A human has to do it to be a miracle, I think is the idea. Yeah. Let's let's do... I think Meg's email was really long. So. We're going to email lottery at cageclub.me. I have so many feelings about this book, and this email kind of got away from me. It's kind of intimidating to write about such a dense book, which is kind of how I feel, too, about talking about it. In the hands of a lesser writer, I have no doubt this book could have easily been twice as long. I've actually been finished with this book for a few weeks now, but I've been putting off writing my email. I actually finished the next book and wrote most of that email already. <laughs> Show off. I really enjoyed reading most of this. In many ways, much of it was a meditation. I didn't like the part where they end up taking over the school and things get wildly violent, but I could also appreciate how the novel led us to that point. It was definitely a shift from thought to action, but the action stemmed from the thought. The first three quarters of powder keg... Then Gurian lit the match in a very vivid way when he used the penny gun to shoot Boystar in the mouth. I think it's before that. I think it's both Abatha. I think that's the that's the powder keg. That's yeah, the, but the, I think uh, uh, the Boystar thing is the the, the public declaration. Yeah, the, all that stuff's on camera. There's you know that's when really the riot starts. And also that part is grisly. Like when the wing nut hits Boystar, broken teeth. teeth and stuff. Yeah, yeah that's that's brutal. It was disturbed. I also was sort of surprised, pleasantly surprised that Boystar survives. Yeah. He's in bad shape, but like, yeah. he's not killed. Yeah. It was disturbing when Gurian got them to break all of their own fingers. The novel foreshadows this in a way by mentioning Gurian doing so throughout, but the twist is that the reader just assumes he's talking about cracking his knuckles. Then at the end, there's the unexpected payback when it goes really gory. Yeah, because throughout, he's trying to break his own knuckle. He, 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 like a refrain when, like sometimes when when you need a breath in the text, um, Gorin will say, "I tried to break my own fingers and they didn't break," which which you're I think led to believe through that that it's impossible to break your own fingers the way that he was doing it because he said, you know, Gorin, as we know, Gorin doesn't lie. So when he says, "I tried to break my own fingers," you think that he's really trying, but. At the end of the text, he does get all of them to break their own fingers with the threat of if they don't break their own fingers, he's going to pulp their fingers with the sap. Really, we learn that a lot of what goes on is willpower. It has nothing to do with can or can't. It has to do with will or won't. Sure. I felt like the novel effectively used religion as a starting off point, and it did a good job of circumventing expectations when push came to shove. No pun intended. I'm sure it was shovers. For example, I thought that Benji was going to be the one to betray Gurian and not the other way around. I also like this too strong of a word, so I'll go with appreciated. But the last words that Gurian said before Berman killed Benji were, I'm the Messiah. This, by the logic of the novel, means that Gurian could not possibly be the Messiah. I think that's the best evidence that he's not the Messiah. But I don't know about could not possibly be. I still think it's like he could be. I mean, anybody could be, as long as they're an Israelite. Well, no. There ha- they have to be a certain kind of Israelite, but go ahead. Hmm. The concept of good and evil was interesting to me in the novel. I think there are many more pure evil than pure good characters, and mostly everyone falls in between. Off the top of my head, pure evil. Botha, Voistar, Berman, Disormi. Pure good are Rabbi Sultan Flowers. We didn't really talk about Flowers. Flowers is just great. He's just like this old black man who like kind of teaches well, life lessons. So, so I, I think like an important thing is... Uh, includes a word that I can't and won't say, but he talks about flowers. Specifically, talks about the Fuji's song "Zealots," mm-hmm. where Lauren Hill says, "After all my logic and my theory, 
I threw in a motherfucker, so you ignorant beep, hear me. Yep. Um, and so Gurin uses because that. Because Flowers is basically proofing the first draft of the instructions. Yeah, but but Gurin's first draft of the instructions reads much more like scripture, um, traditional scripture, and not like a kid telling a story using the language of Aptekizic, uh school and using their, their slang, like, you know, uh, dentist, banser, et cetera, et cetera. Right. All these individualized, like hyperly, hyper-individualized language. Yeah. The, the way that you can make people laugh by saying a bad word. Sure. It, it, it draws attention in an, in an interesting way. So flowers, I think that's an incredibly important part of this story is the use of a child riot to uh, as like a coded way of talking about the, the like long-term nature of violence and specifically religious violence. Sure. Meg says, I don't want to say that Gurian's evil. I do not believe he's evil. I believe that Gurian was failed by every single adult in his life. You think he's failed by his parents? Or they just, well, they don't keep him in check. They maybe like let him run amok too much, but I don't think they failed him. They did. They didn't support him maybe in the right way. I don't know if it's fair to it's say that hard, they failed. It's him. hard. It's hard. I I think that his yeah. Well, I mean, they definitely encourage his mom. Definitely encourages him to be a violent kid. I mean, the idea is like you have to prepare yourself for when violence is done against you. And but, also, you know, he. I don't know that we necessarily get this confirmed, but it seems like when she calls him on the phone. And is speaking both English and Hebrew to him and talking about, like, apologizing for, like, the divorce or whatever, which isn't true, and, like, sort of speaking in code, that he's interpreting it as she's going to ferry me out of the country, that I'm not going to face any kind of repercussions from this, that she is so steadfast in her love and belief in me. She's going to take me to Israel, which she does. He does go to Israel yeah. and he's in prison. Yeah. Oh, I will say, I, I, I talked a little bit earlier about the, that I, I thought that the a flaw in the novel is that his dad is not does not exist for the last two hundred pages. He's he's basically not a character. I think that his influence in, at the end should have been felt more because his mother's influence on him takes over. But he, I think he, he becomes a, I, more I, soldier than scholar. I somewhat disagree because I think his dad is mentioned, and I think it's always influencing because I think to a certain extent he believes his dad will be able to get him out of this. Yeah. And that some of the other kids are even like, your dad's going to whip up something like, you have ADHD, like it's going to be like temporary insanity or whatever. Like, I think even though it's not explicitly said other than that point, I think he knows that he's got this like get out of jail free card, like literally get out of jail free card in his back pocket mm -hmm. because his dad, like as long as he's not like, doesn't do anything like get caught on camera murdering someone or whatever. I think he thinks that like his dad can help. So even if it's not explicitly like he's acting like his but mom. But he doesn't he doesn't want to get out of trouble. He doesn't he doesn't want to be free. He's he's he wants it to be pinned on him. He wants to have it done. He wouldn't he wouldn't take something like an insanity defense or something well, like that. Well, does he want does he want to be punished or does he want to just use that as a way for his friends to not be punished? Oh, I think he wants it because oh, I mean, I think there's a narcissistic component to it. Like if Gurian did this, gets everyone else out of trouble, but it also positions him as the sole proprietor of this incredible act. Right? He's the he's the sole actor, right? Which makes him closer to being the messiah than if sure. he, if a okay. lot of other people did it, That's right? Fair. He spent way more time in the presence of the evil characters than the good ones, Meg says about Gurian. 
I was actually surprised that Brodsky ended up being as evil as he was. There are two quotes in the same scene that really bothered me. It's one of the scenes where Brodsky and Gurion are talking in his office. It may actually be the last one before the final battle. The first quote is, You are here above all else to learn to live lawfully for the rest of your life. You're here to learn how to exist in cages without acting as if they are cages, to live like menches despite being locked in cages. You're here to learn to survive in the world. That is the most basic purpose of our educational system, and it is a high purpose. It is good. Yeah, fuck that. I think, I don't know if I'm actually going to believe, I don't I don't know if I believe what I'm about to say, but I think to a certain extent he's not wrong. I think that he's just, he's going too far. In a way, you could, you could see this as he's explaining to Gurian that life is different than the way he, he sees it. That, like, yeah. there's there's more to learn. That he's just a kid. That, like, you think you have it all figured out. You don't, you're not right. But I also think the way that he explicitly is it out is not good. But I think that, like, I'm not trying to take Brodsky's side, but I think that there is an element of what he's saying that is not only right, but, like, is a, is a worthwhile lesson to teach. Well, I think I, I, I think he's right in that schools um, act like that's their purpose, that they're teaching kids how to live in a cage because that the world is is a cage but that shouldn't be the purpose of schools right because the world doesn't have to be a cage the school should teach kids how to be problem solvers and and to teach them how to be problem solvers is to teach them how to unmake cages that particular quote reminded me of a meme you did it you broke blank down to its core essentials bare essentials the idealized version of schooling is so that students are able to better and be better and smarter but this dark view shows that at its worst education is there to make more compliant citizens yeah that's a, that's a good way of saying it so the other quote that from that scene is it's eight to ten percent of the cage we've talked about this before i think who endanger others at least in part because they're in the cage that's one percent or less of aptichistic that's not troubling that is something to celebrate that is a system that works for 99 percent of the student population you see, it's about math, Gurian. It always is. We yeah, and I think I want to reiterate that that reflects the conversation from earlier in the novel about Sodom and Gomorrah. She says, it's really disgusting to me that those students get reduced to percentages, which we talked about earlier. And I know that's the point, but it still stands. Brodsky seemed like he was so nice in the beginning that he was someone that Gurian could, quote, reason with. But when you reduce a human life to a percentage, you remove their agency and humanity, and that in turn reduces some of your humanity. Brodsky doesn't care about the students themselves, but them as a percentage of the population, and it felt like in that scene, you realize the kind of person he is. You feel bad for him in the beginning because of his dead son, but once that scene happens, you just feel disgust for him, or at least I did. He's just as bad as the other teachers in the school, and not only that, he's acknowledging that it's the fact that the students are in the cage that's making them endanger others. They add attention to the chicken and the egg aspect of the cage that is constantly floating around in the novel. Do bad students go to the cage? Does the cage make bad students? I think, yeah, I think I, I may have said this earlier, but I think in some ways Brodsky might be worse than the other teachers because of that banality of evil aspect to it. Well, because he seems, I think it's what she's saying and sort of what you just said. Then I'm going to expand that needlessly, but like he seems like a good guy. And then you're like, oh, no, he's not. He's just. Yeah, the worst people in the world are people that seem like good guys, but aren't. Felt like Looking at you, Joe Biden. Go ahead. <laughs> it felt like Gurian was straddling the worlds of his father and mother the entire time. The first three quarters of the book, it's more like his father's world, i.e. that of arguments and discussions, but the last battle is his mother's world, well, i.e. Exa that's exactly what I was just saying. But had Gurian not been a part of the cage, he might never have fully committed to his mother's world. She's right. Yeah, that's true. The text is interesting things with Israel because it constantly uses Israelites and really only uses Jew pejoratively. Also, Palestine's only mentioned once, 89% of the way through the novel. 
The news clips at the end felt a bit meta, almost like it was Levin saying, I didn't forget this. It was not mentioned for a reason. Mm-hmm. That goes to the mention of Palestine as well as the interviews of parents and students. I can't imagine how much more complicated this book would have been if there were, for example, Palestinian students at Optikizik. Immeasurably? Yeah, yeah. That would have been real, actually interesting. I'm, I'm surprised that that isn't something that showed up at all. The instructions, too. Where is it? <laughs> the last thing I want to talk about is the idea of the instructions as a religious text. That's how I was able to make sense of all these kids behaving the way they did. None of the actions that the students felt out of place, but it was the fact that they were also self-aware and could either explain why they were behaving the way they did or had the ability to say, I don't know, and go and explaining why they didn't know. To me, that introspection read more like hindsight, like someone able to analyze the students' words and actions and provide a context and rationalization for them. And I guess it also depends on how you accept religious texts. Within the novel, they describe the Torah as being a perfect text. Rabbi Salt uses the phrase, Torah is not an unreliable narrator, he's God. But to me, religious texts are written by people, whether or not they've been struck by divine intervention. Humans are fallible and everything they touch is fallible. The point I want to make here is the scenes following Benji's death. Gurian had said he never felt joy again right before that scene, and then we get a series of emails between him and Jelly. Oh, so fucking sad. Where he wants her to write down an account of what happened for the sake of his text. It felt so self-serving to make poor Jelly revive, no, sorry, to make poor Jelly relive one of the worst moments of her life. And then you also get a perspective of what's going on in the quote-unquote present for them, how some of the quote-unquote scholars are following Gurian's words can I, obsessively. Can I, can I just read that part? With, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so here's what um, Jelly says. Gurian is emailing uh, Jelly to try to get her to recount her perspective of Benji's death. And part of her email says, Sometimes I don't like him for having said he'd come back because he he locks her in a room and then and then says I'll come keep her safe. He says I'll come back and then he goes running to the gym and when he runs to the gym he gets killed in the gym. So she says sometimes I don't like him for having said he'd come back. Sometimes it seems to make him a liar. It doesn't, of course. He was no more clairvoyant than he was suicidal, but that's not how it seems sometimes. Plus, he does keep coming back, doesn't he, Gurian? Sometimes I even like that. Mostly I don't. I can't fall in love. All the boys who remain in the world are so weak. It's like unbelievably sad to me. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Go back to Meg's email. She says, and then you also get her her perspective of what is going on in the present for them, how some of the scholars are following Gurian's words obsessively. It does not seem like Gurian is good here. It's hard to articulate, but it was this scene where I kind of realized, oh, this is not the greater good. This is not really good at all. Before Benji was killed, I would say that I was mostly on Gurian's side. He made good points and rallied the students well. After Benji's death and the scenes following, I felt kind of ill and like I'd been taken for a ride. I'll also say that when he once he starts like talking to the press and stuff like that, and he like starts saying like uh, about the new holiday and how Adonai's on their side and how they're doing this in the name of blah blah blah, et cetera, et cetera, he sounds crazier and crazier. And even all the other students are like, "We saw you on the news. You sounded fucking nuts." And so that is is like. To me, when I read that, it was interesting because it's like, if you were at Jonestown, or if you were in Nexium, or if you were in any of these cults, um, reading a text or by the leader of that cult or in the inner circle of the leader of that cult, everything that they're doing the entire time seems rational. When the people on the outside of the cult 
see that stuff on TV, it's just like, who who is listening to this guy? Right. He sounds so fucking crazy. Right. Right? So, like, that part really made me think, like, oh, yeah, Gurian is, like, for how smart he is and how logical he is, he's also very crazy. Sure. Yeah. I think, again, this is a point that I've been making, if not for the entire podcast, definitely for this season, that because the novel is told from his perspective, we're we're it's less clear that he's crazy. Right. No, we're on his side. I mean, I'm on his side because I... You side know, of damage. We, yeah, we, we all sympathize with um, hurt kids, right? Well, we, we sympathize with kids who have been abandoned by the system. How well, could you not? I mean, it's it, for sure it's that, but it's also just because we're we're following... It's it's his story that we're following. And so, like, everybody's a hero of their, of their own narrative. Yeah. So even if we saw this from, like, literally anyone else's perspective, we'd be like, hmm, this kid's kind of crazy. Yeah, I'm not the hero of my own narrative. The hero of my narrative is Evil Knievel. Good hero. Yeah. That's not to say that I was disappointed in the book about being taken for a ride. The book was great. It was me who felt I was – it was me who I felt a little disappointed in. Like, this is how things like this happen. Gurian was so charming and I fell under a spell just like all the other characters in the novel. And I feel like I I was saying that earlier. Like, it wasn't after Benji died. It was when they actually, like – it was with both of for me, where I was just like, oh, okay, so this kid is more serious than I gave him credit for. Well, also, I mean, when Benji died, you, like, the whole time during the riot and stuff, Gurian is saying, I'll protect you. I'll protect you. And Benji dies, and you go, he can't protect shit. He's well, like, I, also, <laughs> like, I also think that there is, there's so much going on. Yeah. That, like, he can't be in all places at once. Yeah. Like, he has, like, essentially, like, lieutenants in this mm-hmm. war, but it's really just him. No one else really knows what's going on. Yeah. Related to that, Meg says, on a technical level, I really like the inclusion of the emails of the characters. Having, quote, primary sources, in addition to Gurian's written word, makes the text seem more, quote, valid in an effective way. Especially oh. especially when those sources contradict or are angry at Gurian. I mean, how many times did Jelly say fuck you to him in that email? This is completely unrelated, but the next book we're reading is The Idiot. And I just, I opened this on my Kindle earlier. I didn't know what email was until I got to college, was the first line of that book. I'm just like, <laughs> just like a completely different thing. But I, I do, I, I love the inclusion of the emails in the book. I love the perspective. I think that it uses communication and technology. Again, it's, it's communication, it's dialogue, it's whatever. Yeah. Last paragraph. I like to take this moment in the spirit of the novel to close out my email. The last episode I listened to, I got called out for ending all or most of my emails with all in all, which is something I didn't realize I did until Joey said it. So then I had to decide when closing this email if I should lean into it or purposely make a different decision. Either way, whatever I decide to do, it's no longer subconscious and a reaction to the show itself. Thus, all in all, I like this book a lot and I found it worthy of the time I spent reading it. That's so funny. I will will say her email about the idiot. All in all, I liked it. (laughs) So... Shout out to Egg. If you want to email lottery at cageclub.me. But I think that was good. There was, you know, I'm glad that she mentioned flowers. I don't think yeah, yeah, flowers yeah, a, yeah. Sh- a fair shake. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about his dad or mom enough either, but that's, you know, there's so much more. But I think to, to a certain, I think to a certain extent, they inform everything that he does. Like they, by yeah, but the story to- of stories is important. And the stuff about him lighting the guy on fire is really important. But I don't even know how to get into that at this point. We didn't even talk about Vinci Portite at all. Come back for the Patreon where we talk about characters. I'm going to usually, like, on the characters, like, when, we, when we rank these characters like we do on the Patreon, I'm going to have to be like, okay, so who is that? What's their role? Describe them. I'll give you a spoiler here. Benji is an A for me. 
Okay. I think he is the character. I think he's the best character in the novel. And I think he is the character that is most messianic. I, Including I, that he dies for other people's sins. I just feel, I've said before, maybe not on the podcast, but I've told you that basically like I, I, I ballpark, I read a page a minute. Uh-huh. This this took more time than that. Okay. So I just spent 20, 25, 30 hours on the last month, last six weeks or whatever, reading this. And I still feel woefully unprepared to talk about it in a way that I have not felt about any other book we've covered so far. Even Giles? Giles, I was just like, I don't like it. Yeah. I didn't really have a, a, a point of view. I was just like, this didn't work for me. Here's why it didn't work for me. I appreciate the things that I was trying to do. Uh, not my cup of tea. This, I liked, I appreciated, I saw what I was doing. I just, I feel like I didn't do my homework, even though I did. Can I, can I just ask you as a closing question? Yeah. Uh, do you think that the violence in the novel was justified? I think both answers are valid to that. I think yes and no. I think... What a cop out. I think yes. I think, I think yes, absolutely. I think... Like, Not only yes, but absolutely. What's, what's, the, what's the alternative? How does this book end if it's not violent? No, I mean, it's, I don't think of it in terms of a novel and a novel having an ending. Think of it in terms of it being a real-world event. Do you think that— Oh, I mean, I don't think— How, how it ends is these well, kids so, so stay I, in the cage so until school ends. I read this as a school shooting novel, and so yeah. I don't think that it is— Violence is never the answer. I think what they do is inherently wrong. Mm-hmm. Again, to the point from earlier, you're in his— shoes you're seeing from his perspective and so you need something to happen and even though it's probably not the case they have made the decision that like no matter what happens no one will ever listen to them no one will ever be on their side they need to take action to their own hands yeah i think some of the violence is again not that it's ever warranted or whatever i think some of like who their targets are justified that they have actually wronged them and i feel like some are just like not necessarily as justified I think I understand where they're coming from, and I think it works narratively. If you're taking it out of the narrative perspective of telling a story for a book and writing with an effective conclusion, I think they need to do something. I don't think it should have been violence, but I don't know. I can see why they are why they don't have another choice. Okay. Is that fair? Well, yeah, I guess, like, so in, in the context of uh, real-world violent circumstances— is it possible to have sympathy, empathy, or agree with school shooters? I think you can. I think you can. Your heart can break for them, and you can feel their pain mm-hmm. and not agree with their actions. Mm-hmm. I think it's very clear that all these kids, even if they've been deemed bad kids, should still be given a second chance. Yeah, or uh, a first chance, really. Yeah, I think that it, I think you can, it's easy to extrapolate a lesson of, like, frankly, there are no bad kids. There are adults who have failed good kids. And, and that's essentially how it, how it goes. Yeah. So I think, I don't think the violence is justified, but I don't think there's a peaceful resolution because I think they've tried that. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe not to the extent that they should have or could have. Or I mean, hyperscoot is a peaceful action. They they they, all, they did all sorts of civil disobedience. I don't know if it's a peaceful action. It's just not a violent action. It's it, it's it's civilly disobedient. Sure. Okay. Well, today's crime. Keep reading. Is you you have c- 
consistently violated the terms of our agreement. We have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash lottery pod. Today's crime is hijacking an airliner. One, two. I'm about to set this up like this. Hip-hoppers, check it. Another MC loses life tonight, Lord. I beg not you praying to Jesus Christ. Why?